We are in Habakkuk 1, 12 through 2, 1 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there. It's in the Minor Prophets just after the book of Nahum, which most of you should have memorized by now. If you hadn't, it's okay. Um, just to catch you up to kind of where we are, remember that this is Habakkuk's situation. His complaint is arising in a very specific historical setting. The situation has gone way bad in Judah. The people of God have completely forgotten who they are and what they're supposed to be about, and they've completely forgotten uh, the Lord their God in many, many ways. Some of the things that were going on was the poor were being mistreated, people were shedding blood, there was all sort of political maneuvering and anarchy and manipulation, and everybody was operating on a mindset of scarcity and fear. Now, let me ask you of what you know about the Lord your God, is it his desire that his people would live in fear? Got to be at least one Christian in here who knows the answer to that question. No. Why? Is he a God of fear? The answer is no, resoundingly no. So why is it that so often God's people find themselves in fear? It's a, it's a real emotion, isn't it? And it's something that we don't, shouldn't feel bad about because we have it sometimes, but it's something that we definitely should preach the, the, the gospel into that said darkness. Because he's not a God of fear. Is he a God of scarcity? Is there only so much grace to go around? And, and, and is it, were the Jehovah's Witnesses right? Are there only 144,000 going to make it in? Which they've even changed their answer, by the way. No, there's, this God of ours is not a God of scarcity. He's a God of abundance who is steadfast in love. Who is forgiving to thousands and thousands and thousands. The one who says to sin, you can only go so far in the lives of my people before I will tell you there is no more. So he is a God of abundant grace who calls us to the abundant life, not a life of fear and scarcity and maneuvering and manipulating and wrangling, which we are all prone to, aren't we? It's the thing that we go to first so often. This is what is so beautiful about Habakkuk's response. Does he descend into fear and run the other way and say that God has forsaken us as his people? Which way does he run? He actually runs to the throne of grace with some pretty significant questions, right? You remember, he said, how is it, Lord, that you can sit idly by you let me see what's going on, but you seem to be blind and you don't care. Now that's tough to go to the Lord our God and say, isn't it? But think of the courage it would take for a prophet, a man of God who's been set apart for a specific purpose in the life of God's people, for him to have the courage to go to God and say, something looks wrong, Lord. And as we saw, God was angry and he killed Habakkuk on the spot, didn't he? How dare he come before his throne of grace and ask a question of such great gravity? No, in fact, God says, thank you. Finally, somebody cares. A thoughtful person among my people who actually sees that something is wrong and wants something done. And you remember, God answered him, didn't he? And Habakkuk was just crazy about the answer, wasn't he? No, he wasn't. God said, I, I tell you what, Habakkuk, I'm going to take care of this. If they want blood, then they've got it. I'm going to bring the Chaldeans, and I'm going to sweep through Judah, and I'm going to take them into exile. And I'm going to give them exactly what it is they've asked for. 
And why is God doing that? So is this, is this permanent judgment? Is this the end for God's people? Well, no, you're sitting here. Clearly, that was not going to be the end. There would always be a remnant. It was going to be a purifying situation that would sift the, the wheat from the chaff. For those of you who know, Daniel stands clearly in the middle of that aspect of the story. We have the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as well as Daniel himself, who stand firm for the Lord our God. Even Jeremiah is prophesying into the same darkness, as is Zechariah. And so, here we have one who is ultimately honoring the Lord with the weight of his questions, because he sees that this is not the way it's supposed to be, because he knows something about the Lord his God. He knows that the Lord God that he knows could not sit idly by and just let this happen. And so after God has responded to him, Habakkuk is going to come back again and respond to what it is God says he's going to do. And that's what we're going to see here this morning. But before we go there, I want to ask you a question. And it's an important question. It's a question that I think that, that for some reason has become a bit of a foregone conclusion for us. But what is God? I mean, how would you describe him if I came up to you and I said, okay, I, I don't know anything about any of this stuff. How, what is God? How would you, what would, what would first come out of your mouth? And by virtue of that, what would that indicate about what you believe about God and what you are most affected by about God? For instance, if you were to say, oh, he's, he's terrifying, and he'll probably kill you someday if you don't straighten up. Well, why would that be the first thing you would move to necessarily? Uh, <laughs> and so, so what does he say about himself? Remember, we, we, we looked at Exodus 34 back in the very uh, back in September, and that being a beautiful verse for you to remember, and I would, I would charge you, commit at least the verses to memory where God is confessing of himself. He says, I, the Lord your God, am holy and steadfast in love, forgiving, slow to anger. What beautiful words of the Lord our God would it not help us to remember those things first in a time of struggle? And so you need to meditate on, if someone were to come up to you on the street, flat-footed, and ask you, what is God? Who is God? How would you describe God? Because so often I think we've just, we've, we've been so ensconced in the Christian subculture that we don't know how to describe it to those who don't know anymore. We, we don't know how, because it's just in the air we breathe, right? I mean, when I say to you, God, well, we, we know what that means, right? Or do we? I've discovered that maybe even in that Christian subculture, maybe we don't know what it means either, if we're not careful. Especially if we're not having the Scriptures define what it is that we believe about God. And so, Habakkuk is going to answer this exact question as he is wrestling with the response that God has given to his first complaint. As he is trying to get his mind around how it is God can take a pagan people and overrun the chosen ones, the elect, the ones that have been set aside for God's glory. How can he use such a foul and horrid people for such a task? What he's really saying is, God, is there not a better way? But what's critical is that's not where he begins his second complaint. So for our purposes, 
since we are Presbyterian, let's look at the shorter catechism question number four, where it says, what is God? And for those of you who uh, have not spent much time with the catechism of any kind, it is an excellent resource just to help provide some measure of framework of understanding. Listen to how the catechism answers the question. God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. I'm going to read that for you again because I think that's critical for us to remember that all of that stuff that is unchanging, how important that is to us as people. God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. As we turn to the text, we're going to go through verses 12 through 17, and then we'll finish up with verse 1. Hear God's word this morning. Are you, God, not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations? forever. As Habakkuk turns in this second complaint, as he's responding to God's response to his first complaint, notice where he goes first. Does he immediately go to the question that is at the end? God, how will, once you unleash this, how will you put it back in the bottle? How will you bring it back into control? No, that's not where he starts, although that is a pressing question for him. Notice where he starts. He starts in the midst of his questioning and his doubt with what he knows to be true about God. I would tell you that this is absolutely critical for the people of God to remember this because as you look at this world, not even as you look at this world, as you look at your own life, are there not times where you have no earthly idea where God is and what he is doing? And you have significant questions that aren't always framed in the nicest of terms. And so it would do you well, as it has done me well, as it did for Habakkuk. Begin with what you know is true of God and work from there. Because there are some things, honestly, for which there is no set of words that will ever make you feel better about what is happening. There will be no explanation that's going to make you step back and go, well, great, I hope God continues to absolutely let my life be ruined. That would be fantastic. That's insanity. And ultimately what that leads to, would have to lead to, is either a completely neurotic view of religion or stoicism, which is a completely neurotic view of religion. And so 
I know we, the people of God, as we live in a broken and fallen world, in vessels with feet of clay, as Sam Larson was fond of saying so often, that we are going to have questions. There's no way you will confront the darkness of any kind in your life or anyone else's that you will not have questions. Somewhere along the way, we have allowed the world to tell us that as Christians, we should not have questions. And yet what God is saying through the prophet Habakkuk is, no, as Christians, you should have more questions than anybody as you look at this world. Tell me, as you watch the news feed of some kind, what is your answer for Nepal? Well, those godless people deserved it. Well, there were 18 people who were worshiping God in Christ who lost their lives in the midst of that. Collateral damage, as it were. Baltimore. Oh, that's politics. That's easy. Really? Really? You don't think that in Baltimore the economics of scarcity versus abundance are not at work? You don't think the principalities and powers have not been setting up that table for years and years and years and years? If Aileen were in here, she's a native of Baltimore, and she could answer the question for us. Anything that you look at, anything that is going on in this world, there is nothing verbally that is going to make us go, oh, yeah, that's just fantastic. But it is who God is that allows us to stand and continue to wait for his answer. Notice what Habakkuk says of God. He says, are you not from everlasting? He begins with the fact that God transcends all of history. Well, if God transcends history, then what does that mean about his sovereignty and omnipotence over it? Either it is there or we are in trouble. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have questions because that begs the question, if God is omnipotent and he's sovereign, how do we explain Katrina? How do we explain ISIS? How do we explain any of these things? Great question, says God. I'm glad you asked because I'm trying to answer it in this broken and fallen world in and through you, the church. And then he goes on. He says, oh Lord, my God, the Holy One. He sees that God is wholly other than us, that he's completely different than us. He is confessing that even though he's asking the questions, he is so other, he may not even be able to comprehend the answer. And he's recognizing that God, in fact, is holy. And then he confesses God's covenant faithfulness. He, he realizes that there will be a remnant, though he knows not who will be included in the remnant. He says, we will not die. How assuring and important is that in the midst of a circumstance when your own people are falling apart from within and God says, I am now going to sweep over them from without. To know in the end that we will not die because God is faithful in his covenant and to his promises. He says, oh Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. He is confessing that the Lord in fact is sovereign now, I want to say he's not just whistling past the graveyard here because his question further on indicates that he is still processing this, correct? For him to ask, how will you make it stop once you unleash it? Because I know these people. 
Once they have access to destruction, they will not stop. So he must believe that the Lord God is sovereign because he's right. You tell me, what is it that stops anyone from continuing to destroy and destroy and destroy? Pick any war in history. And if you were to study it, what you would discover is we made a significant number of errors and blunders and yet won somehow anyway. Why? Because God is sovereign and gracious and we will not die. And he goes on. And you, O rock, meaning firm foundation, have established them for reproof. He is confessing that I know they're your instrument of judgment, Lord, but that doesn't mean that I don't still have questions, that I don't still wonder if there's not a better way. How many times have you thought the same thing as you looked at your life, as you wondered, Lord, I am positive you could have done this a different way. I am positive there could have been another way to do this that wouldn't hurt near as bad as it does. It wouldn't cost near as much as it does. But what we say next is the critical part. However, Lord, you are more wise than I. You are of everlasting. You are steadfast in love where mine ends and fails. You are faithful where I am not. See, what's interesting about the questions that we have, it wouldn't take 30 seconds for me to to prove that you're not faithful enough to even probably ask the questions. You, you haven't studied long enough to even know what a good question may be, but yet the Lord in his graciousness calls for us to ask them anyway. <clears throat> and so he says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent while the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? See, here's a, here's a presupposition that, that Habakkuk is making, is that are the people of God more righteous than the Chaldeans just because... They are of Abraham. Does Scripture say that, by the way? No, in fact, what it says is that those who ought to know better are going to suffer more because they should have known better. So, in fact, the unrighteousness of the people of God is far more disgusting to the Lord our God than even the paganism of the Chaldeans. Scripture again and again and again who says, those who've tasted the heavenly gift For them to fall away is far worse than for you to have never known. Which the Chaldeans don't know. They don't. They worship their hooks and they worship their nets. They're instruments of war and destruction. And so Habakkuk is supposing that the people of God are somehow more righteous. And God is clearly saying, no, as a matter of fact, they're not. They're worthy of greater judgment. Now, does that, should that concern us? Yes, in some measure it should. It's not that we would lose our salvation, but there is an expectation for us, the people of God, to represent him well, to live in such a way that says we love one another. Remember what Christ said. How will the world know who you are? How you gossip about one another? Because if that was true, we'd be killing it. We would have evangelized this entire world three times over. But unfortunately, that's not the method. Is it in your ability to critique what your church does or doesn't or ought to do? No, if that were true, we'd evangelize the world seven times over. 
Is it in failing to love your neighbor? Certainly not. Certainly not. Is it in failing to care about the advance of the gospel as evidenced by what we give? Do you have any idea what we could do if we were actually obedient to the call to giving? Now, I know, I know you guys are like, I, I knew it. Sooner or later, Cameron's going to bend something toward money. That guy, I could see it in his beady little eyes. I'm not talking about getting a raise. What I'm talking about is having the money to plant churches. What I'm talking about is having the money to support missionaries who do not have the time or the wherewithal to raise all the money they need. And when we don't give, we can't give. We are giving about half what we should. Now, there's some of you who are giving great, so I'm not talking to you. There's some of you who are not giving at all, and I am talking to you. And I'm talking to you because you're robbing yourselves of the opportunity to bear fruit in such a way that you would be blessed to someday be able to know all that it is that the Lord did with what you gave. And so I want to be able to give generously to the advance of the gospel. So one thing I want to say here, which is tangential, and then I'm done, is as far as the future of Christ's community goes in terms of who we would hire next, we will no longer hire anyone who will serve as sort of middle management type deal. We will only from here forth hire those who are being trained up to go out and plant or go out to the mission field or go out to be a minister in some other context. We are not looking to expand on our institution and organization, as it were. If you have questions about that, please come talk to me. But I want to see the gospel go forward, and unless we are willing to put our money where our mouth is, we are liars. So, back to Habakkuk. So here Habakkuk is wrestling with how God could use these people who worship their hooks, who are so brutal and so angry and so awful to others. One of the things that they would do is they would hook a, a large hook through the lips of the people and chain them together and parade them in front of everyone. Now, I don't know if you've ever been fishing and got a fish hook caught in your face, but it doesn't feel good. I've had one caught here as the person kept trying to cast I'm lucky to have one eyebrow left. And Habakkuk is also concerned with how will this end? Once you unleash something as horrible as the Chaldeans, how, Lord, will you make it stop? Because one thing Habakkuk knows about this world is once you unleash lust for violence and everything else, it is a fertile, fertile seedbed in which for it to grow. And if you would, listen to what Walter J. Chantry says in his small commentary, Habakkuk, a wrestler with God. Walter Chantry is a, is a Presbyterian minister who went to Westminster, and he actually ended up uh, pastoring a Reformed Baptist church. Um, and he was in around the 1960s. Listen to what he has to say. He says, sometimes in prayer, we must restate our deepest convictions. It is not merely a remedial exercise for ourselves. If we intended to wrestle with God, making complaints about his providences, we must lay a proper foundation of submission and trust for our prayers. 
So let me ask you, which attributes of God do you turn to first in the midst of your questioning and doubt? What foundation are you quick to lay whenever you are confused, whenever you are met with the darkness, whenever you are confronted with the brokenness in you and in this world? It's a great question for us to think through because it can radically transform how we suffer, how we wrestle, how we struggle. And that that would become an act of worship instead of being something that carries us further from the throne of grace. And once you think on that foundation, does it actually help you to persevere? I can tell you from my own experience that coming to understand this was one of the most transformative things I have had in my own sanctification in all of my life. That, that I would first and foremost in the midst of questioning and doubt, because if you know me at all, you know I have great questions. And I struggle significantly at times with doubt. And I look probably sometimes too long at the world. And I wonder what in the world is God going to do and are we going to make it through any of this? And yet, instead of that being the debilitating reality for me at times, it has now become an opportunity for uh, beautiful worship, for me to stop and, and, and remind myself of who God is and to also, in light of that, remember all the places in which he's been faithful and brought us, his people, through again and again and again. I think we often fail in our worship at remembrance, which is one of the reasons that I've encouraged you all in your Lord's Day or Sabbath practice to make sure that you take time at some point to remember how God is good, because you're going to need it someday. You need it today. Let's turn back to the text. Let's read verse 2-1. Notice how Habakkuk, after his questions, after his wrestling, after his, what the firm foundation allows him to now do. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he, being God, will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So following this final question where Habakkuk is wrestling, he commits to wait for the Lord. He is going to fall silent for a season. He's asked the questions. They're out there. Now he's going to step back, or actually I would say step forward, to receive God's answer. Now what we've got to remember is he's not a farmer, he's a prophet. And prophets had a unique function within the life of Israel. They were the ones who were to respond to what was going on in society and in the people of God. They were the ones to give a word back to the people of God. And if the Chaldeans are going to sweep through Judah, don't you think some other people are going to have some questions about what's going on? And Habakkuk is saying, Lord, prepare me to answer them for you. See, sometimes I think that that's also what we forget, is that we forget that we're not the only ones who have these questions. There are many people who have these questions. And by virtue of you going through the process of asking some of these very difficult questions, it is going to prepare you to engage in a way missionally that you are unable to do otherwise. For those of you who engage missionally with anybody, is this not the first place that people go? They always want to jump, well, explain Hitler. Explain Stalin. Explain Pol Pot. Explain Katrina. Explain 
the, the Catholic Church looking away from the issue that was so awful in her midst with the children. Explain Joseph Coney. Explain why you Christians were so hot and bothered to see him caught and killed just two years ago. And I see most of you looking at me like, who's Joseph Coney? Yeah, exactly. He's not dead and we've moved on. So these are the same questions that the world has. And you can't be missional if what you do is say, well, you know, you just need to accept that the Lord is kind and great. He's going to take care of it. You just need to do that. Now, that's not that that's not true. But that's a terrible way to answer the question. Because it's as unsatisfying to you as it will be to them. You're just whistling past the graveyard now. So, hear me. One of the critical aspects of us wrestling with these questions before the Lord our God is that it prepares us to answer them because everybody else has the same question. And it, it actually uh, solidifies your ability to confess the gospel to other people because now it's got flesh and blood. As we would say, it is now incarnational. It means something. It's not just some rabbit's foot that you whip out when you're scared. And so Habakkuk knows that he must step forward to receive God's answer because the people are going to need it. He is saying, this ain't just about me anymore. My questions have an impact on the people that I've been called to serve and love. It's the same for me as your pastor. I would not serve you well at all if I didn't wrestle with these things at times. I would be utterly useless to you if there were not times where I trail and am and, and on the precipice of falling off into the abyss of doubt, which I know scares some of you. But this is where I go back to the Lord our God is sovereign and he will hold me fast. I trust that he will grant the answer in time, even as I stand in the midst of the shadow of the valley. And the same is true for you too. And we need to wrestle with these questions. And that's what we're here for to serve you in, is as you have these great questions, come talk to us. And my hope is that I would never look at you and say, oh God, I don't want to deal with that. Or if I do, that you'd be gracious enough to ask a second time because you know it needs to be done. Listen to what O. Palmer Robertson says in his commentary. O. Palmer Roberts was also uh, a reformed uh, pastor in the mid-60s here in America. He says, the prophet, meaning Habakkuk, is right in the position he takes with respect to his own role in the resolution of this perplexing issue. He will not attempt to reconcile in his own mind the apparent contradiction between the election of Israel by God as the object of his special love and the devastation of Israel at the hands of the rapacious Chaldeans as ordered by the Lord himself. He will not resort to the resources of human wisdom. Instead, he will watch for an answer that can only come from the Lord. Unfortunately, I think we are anemic in our worship in that we don't create space for waiting. What does our culture think about the word patience? Think about it. 
What's the Christian response when somebody says, I'm going to pray for patience? Well, you better be careful. Oh, God may just test you on that. I don't know why I just turned into like the gold prospector in <laughs> Western California. I don't, I don't know what just happened. Because that's not mining for gold, by the way. But it's, seriously, is that not what we do? When someone says, man, I could really use patience. Well, you, whoo, be real careful as if God were like, like busy and he, heard, like he hears patience. He's like, who said that? I'm going to deal with that. Who said that? That's not how it works. It's crazy. If you live in this world, your patience is going to be tested. Those of you who are parents, am I right? Do I need to say anything else? (laughs) So here's the thing. Here's the thing. We need to do a better job of creating space to hear from the Lord our God. The Sabbath, the Lord's Day, is a great day for that. Uh, There's moments, I'm sure, throughout your day where it's a great opportunity for you to be patient and stand your watch for the questions that you've asked. And let me ask you a question. How, how long does God take to answer sometimes? I have no idea. Sometimes a long, long time. But it's always perfect in his timing. And I know there are many of you who are in waiting. You have significant questions that you have asked. And you know that what you have asked is good. But for some reason, the Lord, your God, the Lord, my God, for whatever reason, is not bringing the answer, which may indicate there may be a better question, which may indicate that there's something else that you need to focus on besides that which is external. Maybe it's internal. And so be patient because the Lord is gracious, and I can testify to you, though there have been things that have taken years to come to answer, and I mean years, decade. He has always been good, and it has always been better than what I wanted him to answer a decade earlier. So, do you patiently await God's faithful response once you've asked the question? And what does faithfulness in waiting look like? Does it mean you, I'm not going to read my Bible until God answers? Well, no, that's the worst thing you can do. Remember, you need a firm foundation. In fact, waiting should be one of the times of your most fervent worship in all of your life. It should be one of the times where, where you draw closer and cling to the crucified like you've never done before instead of holding him hostage and saying, you will not get from me what you want until I get from you what I want. And sometimes we do that passive-aggressive, don't we? We're masters at passive-aggressiveness, aren't we? And yet, the Lord is saying, I want to give my children good gifts. And do you recognize that when you are answered, that it's not just for you, it's for others as well? You will be able to use it in such a way that it will speak deep in the hurt of someone else in a way that no one else can, because you have done the waiting. You have asked the tough question. So as we close out, Hear these words from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the good doctor. There is nothing more consoling or reassuring when oppressed by the problem of history and when wondering what is to happen in the world than to remember that the God whom we worship is outside the flux of history. 
He has preceded history. He has created history. His throne is above the world and outside time. He reigns in eternity, the everlasting God. So what can we take away from all this? Number one, when you have significant questions that you should have and that you should pose to the Lord your God, begin with what you know to be true about him. Remember, remember, remember. Take time to go back to the places where you saw him work and be good to you and those around you. Secondly, trust in what you know to be true. Trust that God is faithful and that he will bring to pass his covenant promises for his people in his timing. How many of you could conceive of being in Egypt in slavery for 400 years? How many of you could conceive of living in exile in the intertestamental period where the voice of God had fallen completely silent for over 400 years? Are we there on either count? No. Not even close. Not even close. Third, Wait for God to respond so that you may share it with others for his glory. And in your waiting, worship. Worship as you have never done before, expectant, expecting him to be good to you, his child. Instead of falling prey to the world's ideas about scarcity and fear and all of that nonsense that we've let creep into our hearts and our minds. So, as we close out this morning, I want to pray for us. <laughs> and uh, of the elders, if the elders, if you would make sure that you're in the back corner, some deacons as well, who's ever present. Um, again, we want to be defined as a church who prays. And I know there's some of you who have questions. I know there's some of you in here who need to be prayed for this morning. And I know that there's a, there's a weird stigma to this that we've got to get over. We've got to. We've got to be able to say to one another, I need prayer. And then say back sometimes, well, I have no earthly idea what to answer you, but I'm gonna pray starting with what I know to be true about the Lord our God and remember his goodness. And I want you to hear that and I want to, you to know that I'm waiting with you. And I'm gonna check on you and never grow tired, church, of doing good. Never. And so there will be folks to pray with you in the back. And I don't care how long we stay. Those of you who don't want to stay, you can go. But as long as there are people to pray for and want to be prayed for, we will we'll do it. And I also want you to know if you do have significant questions and you want to grab lunch or coffee, that's what I'm here for. That's what Josh and Bonnie are here for as well. We want to serve you in that. And, and that is much more important to us than making sure we get the attendance records in Servant Keeper. That gets done this week, that's fine. If it doesn't, I don't care. And so we want to make sure that you have and you get what you need in the time of trouble and that we serve you in the midst of that. Amen? And it's not just us. There's other wise people here that can serve you in the same way. It's not just us because we're leaders, but, it, but that's what we are here for. So let me pray for us, and then Josh is going to come back up. Josh and the band are coming back up. Um, and we'll do one more song. And let's try to 
Let's, let's try to get the motor cranked a little better than what we started with. Father, thank you that you give us a firm foundation. Thank you that your word declares of your goodness and we, your people, have seen it be true again and again and again and again. And where it is most true is in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that he would deliver us from sin and death and darkness and empower us to be vessels for your glory, to join in the kingdom work that you are engaged in in this broken and fallen world. God, please answer our prayers, answer our questions. Be good to us. Let us celebrate how you are faithful and good because of the fruit that is evidence in our lives. For those who are waiting, Lord, I pray that your spirit would grant them strength for their weakening knees and their eyes who have grown tired and their hearts who are heavy laden. I pray that you would strengthen all of that in your spirit and through your church. Help us to love those who are in these difficult circumstances in a way that shows the world exactly who you are. Long-suffering, patient, kind, merciful, loving, faithful. God, I pray that we would be a people who would recognize the necessity to ask the difficult questions to the Lord our God because you're the only one who can give an answer that means anything. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.